This podcast is brought to you by the Los Angeles Inner Group of Overeaters Anonymous. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three podcast feeds of over 200 sound files of individual speakers as well as events such as retreats and workshops. You'll also find order forms for ordering CDs of many of these speakers through the San Fernando Valley Inner Group of OA. Finally, we have a donation button where you can contribute to keeping this valuable service continuing for yourself and others. Again, our website is www.oalaig.org. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Daryl B. Hi, I'm Daryl. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Daryl. Well, it's hard to figure out exactly where to start. I guess uh, starting back as a as a kid, uh, four or five years old is the first time that I, uh, at least in the photographs, uh, uh, is where I started gaining weight. Uh, by the time I was six or seven years old, uh, my mom was putting me on uh, diets. Uh, I was on the uh, that famous uh, AIDS diet, AYDS uh, diet, and uh, she was very much into looking good. And uh, since I was the only overweight member of the family, uh, I was kind of messing up the image there. And uh, she had some sisters that uh, took every opportunity they could to uh, to give her a bad time, and my weight was one of their targets. Uh, you know, why don't you do something about your son? And uh, it didn't matter that uh, I was getting good grades. I, I still was not enough. And um, so what happened with the, the forced dieting at an early age, uh, I became a secret eater also at an early age. And uh, one of the uh, things that I would do uh, was uh, hit the bread box. We had the, the way our house was laid out that you could go through uh, the uh, half bath into the kitchen, and uh, while the family is out uh, being in the uh, in the living room, uh, I would uh, sneak through that uh, that door, pretending I was going to the bathroom. I'd close the door from this side, go out the the other way, and get into the bread box, which was on the sink. Crunch up a bunch of bread and put it in my pocket. Take it back to my room and hide it, and then come back out with the with the family. And I would do that two or three times during the evening. So. As a result, that uh, by the time uh, I went to bed or excused myself uh, early to go to bed, uh, I would really have a binge in my bedroom, and um, and so bread became something that was a really um, uh, big part of my compulsive overeating, and had been uh, uh, for many many years. Uh, I once uh, estimated that I probably doubled or tripled the caloric intake of any meal that I sat down to, especially at a restaurant, with the amount of bread that I, uh, I consumed. They would bring that bread basket, and I'd attack that immediately. And, uh, and, and it was uh, certainly not beyond me to, to ask for more. Um, so uh, I guess by the time I was, uh, when I graduated from college, I weighed 235 pounds. Um, when um, by the time I was in my mid-30s, uh, I was up to uh, 300, 312. My, uh, my top weight was 312. And uh, I uh, didn't like weighing 312. I, you know, I certainly uh, wanted to lose weight. I got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of, 
negative encouragement to do that. I got a lot of shame. I got a lot of uh, guilt trips. I got a lot of uh, enticements, a lot of other ways to try to get me to do it, and uh, nothing really worked. Um, I would go to diet doctors, uh, anybody that I knew that had lost some weight. How did you do it? Where are you going? I'd go there, and I'd give that a try. I, uh, I took the amphetamines, uh, you know, the, the, the bright blue ones and the red ones and the pink ones, and, you know, you take those things and get so wired and then tell the doctor you can't sleep, so he gives you a different color one, you know, that'll help you sleep and and it was just like it was it was crazy it, was, it really was insanity and then uh, I remember uh, one doctor uh, telling me well you know these pills aren't really working so well but we've got something that's uh, really a, a good thing that was the HCG shot so I would go in every morning and I would get a shot uh, and the uh, and but of course at the same time they put you on a 500 calorie a, a day diet so needless to say you're going to lose weight on that no matter what but anyway so I would go in and I'd get my shot every morning and on my way to work. And so I would be there at 6 o'clock in the morning and I'd be sitting there and waiting. And right next door there was a bar where these uh, uh, that opened at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd see all these guys getting ready to go on the freeway and they were going in and getting their shots, you know, and it was a bit different kind. But I used to, I remember being very judgmental of them. And then I, I, it didn't dawn on me until I got into this program. I started looking back at that, that there was, nothing sane about what I was doing, waiting to go in and get a shot so I wouldn't uh, compulsively overeat that day. Anyway, needless to say, it, it really didn't work. In 1979, I was uh, 39 years old. I uh, was um, given the opportunity, uh, in a way, to participate in a research program. Um, the university that I had graduated from uh, it was a men's uh, college in the days that I was there, and they had a uh, government-subsidized uh, program available to their alumni that was going to be one where they would put uh, those of us in the right age group, the middle age group, into one of two uh, programs, uh, or one of two groups. And one group was going to get a government-sponsored, uh, super, uh, government-supervised uh, diet and exercise program and the other was going to get nothing they could just go and do whatever they wanted to do and the uh, idea was to it was a, a program it's probably a study that's still going on but they wanted to see who was going to die first basically and we're going to see what it did to the the lifespan and all of that well when I went through the process I, I found myself uh, being called into the physician's office and he told me that I wasn't a candidate for their program and the reason was was that I was in such poor health and my um, expected lifespan was so short that I would just skew the results. I would just mess up the numbers and uh, there was no sense letting me in to start with. They said I would be dead by the time I was 50 so I'm 39 and I'm doing the math and I, that's not very much time. And um, just about that time I was uh, getting ready to uh, take a trip to Europe uh, on a business uh, trip and I had um, encountered a, a, a fellow that uh, that I had known who also was a 300 pounder but he wasn't he had, anymore he had lost a lot of weight 
And so I said, wow, how'd you do that? And he, and he told me that he was going to the uh, RFO, the Risk Factor Obesity Program at UCLA, which was Optifast. Optifast had just recently come out, come out of being an inpatient program where you had to go into the hospital to be on Optifast, but now they had gotten to the place of where they were ready to go public with it, and so he was one of the early groups. And there were some uh, big-name stars that had uh, gone on it and lost a lot of weight, and so it was getting a lot of publicity and, and and that. So I went down there, and I was one of the early folks that went through. And uh, so I went on the fast, and uh, I stayed on that fast for nine months. I did not have any solid food for nine months. I lost 156 pounds. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that they decided that that was dangerous, probably for good reason. And so they started uh, breaking it into increments to where you couldn't stay on it that long. But at any rate, I went all the way through, and I never deviated one time. That's what they call it over there, deviations. No, I never deviated one time. And uh, every Saturday I had to go down there. Every Saturday I had to get on the scale. Every, and, and you had an appointment time and you got to know all the people uh, around me and uh, that, that had appointment times about the same time that I did. And you'd see the doctor and you'd bring in uh, your urine uh, specimen. They'd take your blood. All kinds of stuff. But they were really monitoring to make sure that everything was going okay. And I... Uh, I couldn't find my book tonight that has the, the stuff in it. One of the things in there is the chart from that original uh, visit at RFO, the, uh, and you could just see this weight which just was just dropping off. And uh, you know, which is uh, you know really feels like uh, really feels great. Felt like a million bucks. And then when uh, as I started gaining or getting close to the gold weight, uh, I. I uh, noticed there, there were some familiar faces uh, that were coming in, and, I, and, and, I, and after a while I recognized them of people who had graduated from the, that program before, but now they had gained a lot of their weight back, and they were coming back as part of a restart group. And I decided, boy, that's not going to be me. I'm not that stupid. I had always felt like this disease had, had snuck up on me, like I had never signed up for this. And if I ever had the chance to start over again, I would never be fat, not in a million years. And so this, is a, this was my second chance, and I wasn't going to let that happen to me. And so, uh, sure enough, I, I graduated. I went to uh, their classes that they had. I was, uh, And then uh, there was... Uh, uh, something that happened in my business uh, life that uh, was a crisis, a business crisis. And I remember going through that and uh, or starting to go through that and making the conscious decision, I don't have time for this UCLA crap. I've got, I've got business to take care of here. And what happened was, as you might expect, I started gaining weight. And uh, what do you know? Uh, the pounds just poured back on, and now it's a little over a year later, and I come back in there at 290. Okay. Now there's a phrase in the big book, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I guarantee you that fits the feeling that I had. It was unbelievable. All of these people that had been patting me on the back for the weight loss and and that were now not saying much, but just looking at me with that look. And you guys know what that look is, and. Uh, uh, and, it, and, and you know what they're thinking, uh, and, and and I wasn't thinking much more, and much many better thoughts than probably probably they were, and uh, so anyway, here I go as one of the re restarts, and I go back and I lose the, the weight again and uh, gain it again, 
and lose it again, gain it again. So over the next five years, six years, I, uh, I gained and lost uh, 100 pounds several times. And uh, on the on, on the the fast, and I knew it was crazy. And I and I, but I I thought to myself, if I could at least be losing weight or thin half the time, that was better than what I had before. And uh, and I knew it was hurting my health, but I didn't care. I would still take it. Uh, and so I decided that I was just going to stick it out. And so I got to the place of where I was really a fixture around there. And, and some people referred to me as Mr. RFO and and uh, and that because I was just, you know, I was coming and going all the time. And then um, this disease uh, uh, kind of turned up the the heat a bit. Uh, I went in there on Saturday mornings. They weighed you on Saturday mornings. And uh, one day I got this idea that, you know, after they weighed me, I'll bet you I could stop and have lunch on the way home. And they'd never known next Saturday. And it was true. They didn't know. I that, that worked great. And two or three times I, I did that and I still lost weight and uh, enough weight that they weren't concerned that I was falling within the parameters that they had for their uh, their program there. And uh, then uh, it started working so well that I got this great idea. Well, if I could do that, I could probably have brunch uh, on Sunday morning. Now, you guys know what brunch is to us. And, uh, and uh, I couldn't do brunch. I tried. And, uh, and, and every time, every week that I would go in, I was trying to shed more clothes to compensate for what I was eating and, and so that I, that I wouldn't, uh, the scale wouldn't uh, uh, reveal my secret. Well, I, that only lasted so long. And they, uh, they basically kicked me out of that program, and I didn't think that was possible. All the money I put in, this wasn't covered by insurance. I was spending a lot of money to go there. And uh, so they, uh, they, a guy called me in his office another time. A doctor called me in his office and said, you know, you're not, you're not doing the OptiFast thing. You're not fasting. Uh, we can't have you in this program. And so they booted me out. And, uh, you know, there's uh, when you... Uh, uh, you read the doctor's opinion, and he talks about Dr. Silkworth talks about uh, people or, or uh, alcoholics that say, you know, but I have everything to live for. Help me, doctor. And, and guess what? You know, that was basically what I was telling him. What well, What am I going to do now? And he's, well, you might try psychotherapy. And so I started going to a psychotherapist over in Westwood that was close to the hospital that he referred me to. And um, and that poor guy, uh, he's still my therapist today. You know, it's 20 years later, and and, and I. Still go to the guy. He's a great guy, and uh, but uh, but he had me doing all kinds of stuff, and he and it didn't make sense to him. And uh, he was a young guy at the time, and I'm sure that uh, that, that uh, it. Still doesn't make sense to him, actually. And uh, he still doesn't get it after all these years. I've been trying to teach him, but he just doesn't get it. But uh, at any rate, he uh, he had me doing things like, uh, I don't care whether you eat or you don't eat. What I want you to do is when you go to the refrigerator, I want you, before you open that door, is to write down what your feelings are. And I couldn't do it. It's not like an easy request. I couldn't do it. And I didn't realize until I got here why I couldn't do it is because I never had to identify my feelings if I'm eating compulsively. The food knocked them all out. So I didn't have to identify, oh, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. I just had to get that food. If I got the food in me, it was all gone. And I didn't have to worry about any of it. So anyway, so that wasn't working. I was gaining the weight. Uh, I... um, 
my uh, ex-wife, uh, my first wife, has uh, is given me permission to share her part of this story. Uh, she was alcoholic and had gotten to the place of where it was um, uh, it was one of those things where I knew that the only solution for her was going to be death. There was nothing. There was no way that there was going to be any intervention that was going to save her. And we got to the place of where uh, I ended up having to take her in, and, and I put her in a um, uh, program uh, at uh, St. Jude's uh, down in Yorba Linda, and uh, and it was a in those days they had like 28-day programs, and which were partially covered by insurance anyway. And so uh, she went down there, and I would go to visit her after work every day. And what they those people down there they could see when I got down there the way I was eating because I would I would spend the dinner hour with them down there that I was a compulsive eater and what they didn't see was that I ate my way down there and I ate my way home from there and I would and I would eat until I would I would pass out when I got kicked out of the uh, RFO program I was uh, right around 200 pounds just a, a couple pounds over that and uh, by this time I was already at 250 260 and I knew that this time that 312 was not going to be the top what people didn't understand was that at 312 at the height of my disease I was trying my best I, they had this idea that I was just eating everything I wanted to and gen life was just wonderful. I was doing my best. I was trying to restrict that eating. I didn't like being 300 pounds. And I knew this time that I had no defenses at all. I had nothing left. And um, uh, and so uh, I was being in weight. And so when I um, went there and they said, they and, and my wife got sober um uh, uh, she's one. She's the only one, actually, after all these years of her class down there that has maintained continuous sobriety uh, uh, by the grace of God and, and the program of AA. And um, anyway, so they said, you know, you can tell your husband there's a place for him too. And they didn't have an eating disorder unit there, but they told me about OA. Now, I don't know how you go to all the places that I went to through my eating career without knowing about OA, but that was the case. I didn't know. And uh, so I ended up uh, going to my first meeting. Uh, it was a, um, a Tuesday night meeting uh, over in Covina, and I went in there, and I sort of liked what I heard, but sort of didn't like what I heard. There was too much God stuff, too much God talk going on there. But it was obvious that these people had a had established some sort of a working relationship with food. I didn't know exactly what this was all about, but uh, I decided, well, I'm just going to grab a bunch of literature, and I'm going to go home and figure it out myself, and then uh, I'll be cured. And uh, and so I tried to do that, but I was uh, I couldn't stop eating. And so now it's a Thursday night, and I go to a meeting at the uh, Cabina Intercommunity Hospital. And that night, uh, of all nights, they uh, they had something happen in the regular meeting room, and they put us in the doctor's boardroom. And the doctor's boardroom was a very, very plush room, and it had this huge oval table with all of these real soft chairs around it. And uh, so everybody is sitting around this big table. And so somebody decides at this meeting that uh, I went to for a number of years, and I never heard of it before, and I hadn't heard of it since, where somebody decides to have a topic. And the topic is going to be miracles. And uh, so, and, But since we're at an oval table, they just start going around. 
And uh, when it comes to me, I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I gave probably one of the most arrogant pitches you could ever imagine. And I told them I didn't believe in their miracles, and I uh, and, and I didn't much believe in their God, and just the whole business, you know. And it was a it was a really a, an, an arrogant pitch. And you know what I got in return was instead of what you would expect from any other organization is basically, if you don't like what we're doing here, why don't you just hit the road? Why don't you go on down to Weight Watchers or one of those other places? But that's not what I got. I had this lady named Rusty who spoke up and said, well, just keep coming back and maybe you'll see a miracle. Now, I always have a tough time with this part of the story. The miracle happened for me that night. And I didn't know it for two days. Two days later, my wife by that time is out of the the recovery uh, unit. And they had given her instructions that chocolate would be one of the things that would help her not uh, drink. And uh, so she made this big batch of chocolate chip cookies. And she comes in with it and she says, do you want some of these? And I said, I don't eat those anymore. And I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. And she shared with me later, as I, as we kind of talked about that that moment, not, not that long ago, actually, as I started crying. And the reason was was because I knew something had happened in here. It was different. Remember, I had come off the Optifast program. I had fasted for for nine months at a time. I didn't eat any cookies during those nine months. But by God, that doesn't mean that I didn't eat them anymore. You know, I was going to get them. They just wasn't going to be then. And uh, that was gone. I was I was relieved. And that was my second step. I came to believe in that moment. And sometimes I think that that was the only way that God could have gotten me to take that second step, was to perform a miracle that only I knew the magnitude of. And uh, that's that was it. And that was 20 years ago. Love to say that, uh, that, that it's been all downhill ever since. I've learned to understand the difference between an ego-based program like RFO, the UCLA program, and a God-based program like Overeaters Anonymous. And uh, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. That ego-based program will help me for a while, as long as I'm losing weight. But I can't maintain weight on that program. In the 20 years that I've been here, I've had some really rough times uh, with the food. And uh, my top weight since then has been 208 pounds, so it's still well uh, uh, under a a 100-pound weight loss for all that time that I was here. But there were times when I didn't know whether I was going to be here, and and some of them fairly recent. And the only thing that I knew was that the answer was going to be and to keep coming back is that I knew that I had had people tell me the only thing I've done right for all these years is to keep coming back. And by coming back, I got to hear some things at meetings when I needed to hear them, and they made sense to me. 
And one of the things that I heard, I was at a uh, at, at the morning attitude adjustment meeting uh, over in uh, uh, Glendora, and uh, one, uh, my uh, my friend Stan was talking about how uh, he, he kind of thought that recovery was kind of like being in orbit around the sun. It's a long ep- uh, um, oval orbit. I can't think of the right term. Elliptical orbit. orbit. And, uh, and he said that sometimes the sun is real, real tiny because you're real, real far away. And then sometimes it's really bright and it's, it's warm because now you're coming back around. But he says as long as you don't jump orbit, you're going to be okay. You know, you just stay there. You're going to be okay. And so I, and that really helped me. And that, it helped me to, to just say, oh, I'm just going to stay in orbit. I'm not going to jump orbit. I'm not going to go someplace else. I'm going to stay here. And um, uh, and then it, as I was starting to kind of think along those lines, it dawned on me that God's universe actually only goes in one direction, that my recovery wasn't behind me. It was in front of me is that all I had to do was stay in that orbit and I was going to be back in recovery again. And I knew that. I had the I, I had this really strong faith that that's the way it was going to be. And it was the faith in this program. It was the, you know, that I had I had been there myself, but I saw other people that were there. And uh, I never saw uh, anybody that did better by leaving the program. I, I really didn't, and I knew that that was going to be true for me. One of the big differences was that I knew that at my age and what I've been through, that I didn't have much of a choice, that my next time out there was probably going to be fatal. And uh, uh, so in um, at a meeting probably about three or four years ago, somebody shared about a website where you could – punch in your numbers and it would tell you how long you're going to live. I had my numbers from 1979. And so I sat down and I plugged in those numbers. And I found out that I died in 1992. Okay? Two years later than they thought. They thought I was going to die at 50, but I really died at, at 52. And that coincided with my fifth 08 birthday. Uh, in three days, I'm going to be 68 years old. And, um, you know, I... For one uh, for an anniversary gift one year, my wife knows that uh, I always like Bobby Darren, and uh, Bobby Darren uh, died at a fairly young age because he had a heart uh, d- uh, condition, and uh, and he knew that uh, that that was, but he did everything that he could to stay in the best health that he could. Well, she gave, gave me a DVD of his last performance. Well, one of the the little outtakes of the DVD is him receiving an award. And uh, and so when he received the award, um, they it said all of these different things that he had, wonderful things that he had done. He gets the award in his hands and he says, you can't do any of those things if you're dead. And that's the way I feel, that all of the things that have happened to me since 1992 could not happen if I were dead. And it's because of this program that I'm not. And that's the only reason that I know without a doubt that that would have been my fate. Um, I can tell you that uh, uh, that today uh, I'm abstinent. I feel, you know, it, it feels really good, but, it, but it's, it hasn't been an easy abstinence. You know, I had a, I sponsored a guy once that used to talk about being stark, raving abstinent. 
Well, that's where I was at. I, was, I didn't have that, that inner peace that I consider to be part of abstinence. I had the, the good food abstinence, but I really didn't have the inner peace. And, uh, and for, so I struggled with that. Uh, but then I started to realize that even that is where I'm supposed to be. And, uh, you know, there's a, a reading in the life of it. We, we passed it not too long ago from January 6th, and it talks about everything being the way it's supposed to be, and that uh, we, and we have to be patient, we have to wait, and uh, uh, it talks about the oracles of waiting and all kinds of stuff like that. And I remember that when I was new, I was sharing at a meeting, and uh, and I was... Pretty nuts, I think. And uh, so the uh, uh, one of the guys that was at the meeting uh, told me, he says, "You got to go home and read January 6th. And, uh, and I remember I got uh, I got abstinent in, in July, and so this was probably October or thereabouts. And I've got to go home and read January 6th. Well, that's what it was about: was just wait. It's going to be okay, basically. And uh, and that's been and, and I think that that has really helped me a lot uh, over the years is just having. That uh, that awareness and that knowledge. Um, people in my end of town know that one of the things that I started doing the first year that I got abstinence, that first December, is I make a, a Christmas tape and uh, and it has a recovery message on it and some Christmas uh, songs and and that. And uh, when I uh, I got married uh, for the second time, I've been uh, married 13 years in in that marriage. Uh, that uh, my wife also uh, is a member of OA, and uh, so we put out the. And she, she's more technologically advanced than I am by a, a lot, and uh, so uh, and now it's a CD that we put out, and uh, and we always try to pick somebody that that really has a good message, and and uh, like not this year, but but last year we had Carl G on there because Carl had just passed away, and he had just led the men's retreat, and and uh, so we we had a, a, a talk by Carl, and then, then we had some, some uh, Christmas music on there. And uh, this year, uh, I had picked out my, my speaker a long time ago. My speaker was going to be a, a lady named Anne, and uh, some of you may have heard her either in person or uh, on tape, but uh, she's from England, and she's a great speaker and has a heck of a story and all of that. Well, when I, I had ordered the, uh, the, the CDs, uh, from an outfit uh, on the internet, and uh, because I and I didn't I, I didn't know who I was going to get, but I just ordered. They had a package of, of uh, OACDs. Well, they sent me a free gift one, and I hadn't looked at it. It, it they had put a sticky over the label and it said free gift, and. Uh, so getting ready to to make the CD, and I was in my car, and I and, and I said, oh, I think I'll pop that one in. Well, when I pulled it, the the label off, it was Bill B. And some of you, I'm sure, know who Bill B. was. Bill died uh, a few years ago. Bill Bluestein. And Bill had uh, it was a pretty controversial figure in Overeaters Anonymous, and um, uh, he had written a book called Compulsive Overeater, and he had written another book called Maintenance, and some people thought he was using the program to promote his books and lots of stuff like that. But my history with Bill B uh, is. 
pretty interesting one that Bill is actually the guy that took me through the steps the first time. He didn't know that he did, but uh, somebody had given me a set of tapes of Bill doing a retreat. And uh, so I had that set of tapes, and that was my first exposure to the steps. I was already abstinent. In other words, I didn't earn this abstinence by anything I had ever done. But I had this, this set of tapes, and I'm listening to it, and I listened to it over and over and over again. And uh, then I went to the OA birthday party, and Bill was speaking as part of a panel. And uh, I decided that I had never seen him before, never seen him in person, never heard him in person, but I was going to go up and talk to him afterwards. Well, uh, he had a lot of people around him, and, and, he, and I couldn't talk to him uh, very easily. So I had a business card, and I wrote on the back of the business card, your tapes really helped me, thanks. And I, and I just kind of passed it to him. And he, and he took it, put it in his pocket, never looked at it. And so now I, about two weeks later, I get this package at work. And I, and, and I what the heck is this? And I open it up, and it's from Bill. And it's a whole set of tapes, a different retreat than the one that I had. He says, thought these might help. And then another two or three weeks go by, and I get another package from him. And, uh, and it's another set of tapes. And so I, you know, I, I, I realize that this guy really is doing his 12-step work. There's no question about it. So then uh, there was a, a time when, when I was doing the uh, uh, a uh, men's meeting uh, out uh, in the uh, in our area, and we asked Bill to come and speak, and uh, it was out in Montclair, and so. Uh, and he came out there, and I and I asked him about that, and he didn't remember it at all. He didn't. He had no memory of it at all. So anyway, so I, I, I put in this CD, and Bill is talking. It was Bill from 1987, which is when I came into program, and so I, from my standpoint, classic Bill B. And uh, Bill is talking about how they uh, how they had founded, uh, uh, how they he was on the board of directors when they decided that gray sheet was the way to go. And on this on this CD, he's talking about that. He's talking about the the gray sheet. He's talking about uh, the insanity of the disease. And he talked about how crazy he was when uh, he went into a restaurant and he. Uh, uh, started, uh, he couldn't wait for dinner and he started uh, eating a pastry. He thought it was a pastry and it was actually one of those fake things, pastries that they have on a dessert tray. And, uh, and he said, that was crazy. He says, but then after I became abstinent and uh, was working the gray sheet, he says, I go to, the, I, I go to a restaurant and they, they, uh, the chef uh, had took sick and so they can't feed us until 7 o'clock. And my abstinence is I got to eat at 6 o'clock. And so they, he made them get him a salad so that he could start eating at six o'clock. And then he started, and then he said, you know, what was crazier? He says they're both crazy. And uh, and so then he talked about how he went through the steps the first time on this CD, and uh, uh, and he talked about how he was at a uh, at a meeting and uh, and he was listening to this lady talk, and she said that. The promise of the program is that you don't have to eat that way anymore. That you, and, he said, and so he went up to her and he said, well, what do you mean? She said that as a result of these steps that the food obsession will be lifted. 
And, uh, and, and he said, I couldn't believe it. And, and he asked her several different ways, and she said, yeah, that's what the program says. It's guaranteed. And so he decided he was going to go through the steps, but he said being the kind of arrogant, self-centered guy that he was, he decided that there was nobody on the West Coast because nobody in OA was talking steps much, you know, the 12-step program. And so he ended up going back to, um, um, to go through the steps with the only surviving guy at that time uh, from the original folks from the big book, uh, uh, a guy named Clarence. And so, uh, and Clarence was like number five or six or something like that. And so he goes back and, and uh, he goes through the steps with Clarence. But the funny thing is he calls Clarence on the phone. And, uh, and so then uh, he had, he had uh, Lois was still alive, so he had gotten a hold of Lois's number. Lois said, well, there's only one guy I know, and that's Clarence. And so he calls Clarence. And Clarence says, well, sure, if you want to come back here to New York, he says, I'll take you through the steps. And so then he says, uh, he says let me ask you a couple of questions. He says, how long have you been drinking? He says, oh, I said, I don't drink. And he says, well, I know you're not drinking now, but how long did you drink? And he says, oh, I never drank. He says, what do you mean you never drank? And he said, uh, he said, well, I never have. He said, I'm, I'm not a drinker. He said, what the hell do you want to come back here and go through the steps for? And he says, well, he says, I'm a compulsive overeater. He says, what the hell's that? <laughs> and he says, well, that's a guy that can't uh, stop eating. And he says, what do you mean you can't stop eating? That's crazy. And he said, I know, but I can't stop. And so I said, I'm figuring that maybe this will work for me the way it works for you. He says, how would you get my name? And he said, well, I go to a program called Overeaters Anonymous. And the guy says, you mean there's a whole bunch of you? <laughs> Anyway, he goes back there and he goes through the steps with Clarence and he comes back. And, uh, and, and as far as I know, to the day he died, he was constantly taking people through the steps. He would take a, a, a couple of days off a, a month and he would, uh, he would gather up a, a group and uh, he would take them through. And uh, usually in, in one day or maybe a weekend or something like that. And uh, at that, that CD uh, actually helped me a lot because I, I really, uh, as he was talking about doing things like what they talk about in the big book, doing a daily 10th step. And, uh, and I started doing those things. And, uh, and, 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 I, and, and just, you know, getting back to that step zero, becoming willing to go to any length. Harlan, when he was here a, a few weeks ago, talked about step zero, being willing to go to any length, and uh, just being willing to do that. And, um, and that's what I need to do. And I, I, I sit down at, at night, and I sit down at the morning, in the morning, and I just write a little bit. But I, but I had some things come to light because of the writing that uh, wouldn't have come to light uh, otherwise. Slowly but surely, I feel the, the, the spirituality starting to come back, and, and, uh, and I know that it's, uh, that it's just a matter of time, that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, and, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm on that orbit, and uh, I'm not going to jump ship, I'm not going to jump orbit, I'm just going to keep coming back, because I know that, that, uh, that my recovery is still in front of me, and I enjoy every moment of it in this program. Thank you. Step 10 and 11, well, step 10, uh, before uh, the, uh, I started doing the daily uh, 10th step, uh, step, t- uh, step 10 for me 
was uh, basically writing when I had something that was bugging me, when I had a fear, something like that, and I would write and I'd call my sponsor. And um, I, I have a great sponsor, the same sponsor I've had since I've come into the program, and uh, she, uh, she's uh, a lady that has a lot of years in AA as well as OA, and uh, she had. Um, and she sponsored me through the big book, and so basically, uh, I would uh, I would sit down um, and I would take. But what I would do in the morning, this was back then. Uh, what I would do in the morning was that I would sit down with my big book, and I would uh, read. So I started chapter five, and I would read through the third step prayer, and I would uh, I would read that part, that whole that whole section. Rarely have we seen a person fail, and I would do that, and then I would kind of uh, think about that, and, and then I would start thinking about my day ahead. How did that fit in? How was I gonna how, how was I gonna turn my will and my life over this day to him, and, and how was I gonna do it his way instead of my way? And I spent and, and I and, and I. I could tell when I had turned it over, and I would stay. I, I would stay home. I was uh, at that time. I uh, had my own business, and I had the luxury of doing it. I wouldn't go to work until I had done that, and uh, and I had come to that place of where I had really felt like I had turned that day over. And so that was kind of like my 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 tenth and eleventh kind of um, uh, kind of rolled into one. And uh, and actually, I find in the big book, it's it, it, they're, they're kind of rolled into one anyway. When you really look at it and you read those pages, and uh, but that was that was it. I got away from doing that. I think that one of the real, um, uh, let's just say, one of the sneaky uh, tactics of the uh, uh, disease is busyness, and I got too busy to do it. I got too busy to do it. You know, this life that I was given uh, uh, became the important thing again instead of uh, the gift that was underlying that. And uh, uh, and so I got too busy to do it. And so uh, fighting against the busyness is where I'm at today, is trying to trying to make time and realizing that I have to do that. And uh, so that uh, and I and I do the best I can. I go to a morning meeting. Uh, you know, uh, somebody once told me that in uh, uh, in the big book, in the third edition, that there's a story, and I don't I don't know which one it is, but there's a story where somebody makes the remark how God has given him the chance to live his life over again. Since 1992, I uh, went back to school. Uh, I, we, we sold our family business. I went back to school. I uh, got a master's degree. I uh, got a new career as a therapist. Uh, um, and uh, uh, ended up getting remarried. Uh, I have two little boys. Uh, I have a, uh, an eight-year-old and a, an eleven-year-old, and um, I got a wonderful wife. Uh, so a lot of I, I've gotten to do these things uh, over again, and it's uh, it, it's really been a blessing for me. And one of the things that I that's so important, I think, is as part of the uh, the amends part of the process, which I really think is important, is recognizing the part of the amends is that we don't get to do that anymore. So if I were to treat my 
wife today the way I treated my first wife, if I were to treat my kids today the way I treated my kids in that first family, then my amends would be hollow. They wouldn't mean anything. I have to do it differently. I have no choice. I have to do it differently today. And uh, I think I'm a good dad today. And, uh, and I think I'm a pretty good husband today. But uh, I guarantee you that that wasn't the case uh, before I came to this program. So I've been blessed in so many different ways. And, uh, anyway, I don't know how I got from your question to there, but there I am. So. Okay, thank you.